Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking to a man who has created, a man who has marketed, and a man who has brought enjoyment to many in the world of golf. And he continues to deliver decades after he started this odyssey. It's a pleasure to be joined by the founder of Breakthrough Golf Technology, the legendary Barney Adams is here on The Range. Barney, thanks for joining us. A legend in my own mind. That's what everybody tells me. Well, no, I think a lot of people have you in the legendary category. Don't be, don't be fooled. But uh, let's go back to the very beginning. When did golf enter into your life? Well, I was a caddy uh, at age twelve and thirteen, and I I uh, worked at another golf course. Uh, in our family, growing up, we weren't poor. But if you wanted to have any spending money or you wanted to have anything, you know, extra, you had to go out and work for it. So I, mean, I just knew from the day I, I can remember helping. I remember helping a paper boy deliver papers and I was like 10 or 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And that that was always that way. You just had to find something to make a buck or two. That's all. So there was a golf course about uh, four miles from our home. Uh, in upstate New York, and I worked there, and I cleaned clubs, and you know, just did uh, whatever was necessary. Swept the floors, uh, stacked uh, the the carts after the people got finished playing, and on and on and on and on. And then from there, I started to I, I, I learned how to play a little bit. I fell in love with the game, and I caddied. And the place where I caddied was about. 15 miles away. So I had to get up in the middle of the night and hitchhike uh, uh, to this other golf course so I could caddy all day. And then after I got finished caddying, uh, we played two on two basketball for 50 cents a game. So it was like a war. (laughs) (laughs) Then uh, when that was over, I came back home and so on. So what I, what I remember is this, when I used to put the clubs away, you know, stack the, get the carts lined up and so on. And I had to clean everybody's clubs. That was part of the deal. The long irons were never very dirty. And I remembered, why are you spending money for these clubs if you don't use them? <laughs> and that really stuck with me. And the, and the, the, the whole idea of if you make a golf club for somebody, you want it to be used. You don't want it to be a, a, you know, whatever, just a, a fashion item or something. So I do remember that very, very clearly. Uh, I played uh, college golf, such as it was. Uh, this is in New York, where in three seasons, I never played without snow, either in the air or on the ground. Um, and we were just a small school, you know, we weren't a big deal or anything like that. Um, and as I look back on it, the 
even when I graduated from college and had a, a job offer, I had sent letters out to the major manufacturing companies in golf, uh, seeing if I could get a job. So obviously I was infatuated with the game more than I even thought. I just, these things kind of came back to me. And uh, of course, nobody hired me, but uh, I get, it was always there. You finally did enter into the golf industry, but it was some time after college. I mean, it had been, what, 20 years oh, yeah. until you really got into golf. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, uh, was just through a friend. I had met Dave Pels, the short game guy, and uh, Dave Pels and I, we played a couple tournaments together. You know, we were, we were friendly and so on. And then he, he, I was not with him then, but he had come up with this idea for the lightweight golf clubs, the feather lights, uh, which by the way, are much different than a lot of the clubs on the market today, but that's another story. Uh, and they were, uh, he had some backers in Abilene, Texas, and the backers got a hold of me. They were, they were trying to run the company and nobody was doing a very good job to, just to be honest about it and asked me to come to Abilene uh, to take over the company. Now, at the time, uh, I was single at the time, and I, had, I was working in the Silicon Valley. And it, it was just that somehow the chance to be in the golf industry was, it was like a, I don't know, a spark or something. And I said, okay, so I, I left the Silicon Valley and drove across country to Abilene, Texas, to start up in the golf business. I'll say Abilene is not exactly uh, near anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a few hours outside of uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah. Because I, I, I actually spent time in that area a little bit growing up. So I, I, I can imagine what it was like going there and like, okay, we're going to try to make a golf business work when there isn't any other golf business around. Here I was working in the Silicon Valley. I was working off of... I worked for some people at 3000 Sand Hill Road, which is the, the hub of the venture capital community. Yep, and I, Menlo was, Park. I, could, I would get hired to go into companies to try and help them out and so on. Kind of a troubleshooter, so to speak. I leave there. I go to Abilene, Texas, where there were three colleges, none of which allowed dancing. <laughs> so one, one might say that there was a cultural divide between Abilene, Texas and uh, and uh, Northern California. Although I want to be very clear, I really liked Abilene, Texas a lot. I still have friends from there. Uh, it was a lot closer to my roots growing up because I grew up in a town of 800 people, farm worked on farms and stuff. So uh, I really, I, I liked Abilene, nice part of the country, except, except that the wind never does not blow. That was the only issue. That has its own applications in uh, golf clubs. And you yeah. learned early on uh, that custom fitting was something that really can help a golfer. It's a real thing to alter a club to fit a, a player's swing. Well, when I got started, I mean, when I got to Abilene, Pels had left. He had gotten a, uh, an opportunity to go with another uh, guy. And so I was there kind of by myself, so to speak. And you know, you would think I would have just packed it in and left, but I didn't. I just said, this is my chance. This is my chance to start on my own. And I actually designed a line of golf clubs and I just figured, you know, here I am, I'm going to sell these things. Well, <laughs> it didn't exactly work out that way. You know, nobody was interested in the product. I couldn't, I didn't market them, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, 
it was to, to suffice to say it was a struggle. I'll, I'll tell you one story. Um, because I wrote a book about this uh, because it's such a, 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 I don't know, crazy story, the, the, the reasoning or the lack of reasoning and so on. Uh, the, the subtitle in my book was uh, Entrepreneurship and Insanity, a Fine Line. And I, 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 I thought I invented that line, but then I found out afterwards it had been written by somebody else, you know, years before. So, uh, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in that. So I get to Abilene uh, and we, when, when the first part of it was we had found a customer uh, on television, one of those late night, you know, sell everything shows that mm -hmm. wanted to sell golf clubs. Now, this was at the end of the Pell's deal. So we weren't, uh, you know, fooling around with a brand or anything. And we made a deal with them to sell clubs and it was just like cost plus type of deal, but it was, it provided cash. That was my objective was to build right. cash to, to go in the business full time with that. I left, went back to Silicon Valley, went back to my job out there, the troubleshooting thing. And the idea was to spend at least a year, maybe longer while we built up enough cash so I could go back and now get in the business full time. Okay because I didn't have backers or anything like that. It was a plan. Well, <laughs> I worked at a, I worked at a company. Uh, we made uh, equipment that uh, did testing on uh, semiconductors, mill spec 105 C. I remember it very well, very for uh, semiconductors. They were going to be used like in space applications. They had to work. They couldn't break down. Mm -hmm. And it was a very technical environment. And I, frankly, I was way out of my league. And it, it, I didn't enjoy that world. I mean, the really good people, smart, super smart people, highly, highly technical people. Uh, you know, I went to a, a technical college. It reminded me of the people I went to school with. And I didn't fit in there very well either, you know. So <laughs> here, here I was. And they, uh, the, you, you mentioned Orlando earlier. Uh, the PGA show came along, and I had been before. So I drove back to Abilene, packed up our company, such as it was, rented a trailer, drove to Orlando. We had a booth, set up the booth, and stood there for three days, four days, I think, in those days. I forget. Basically, it was ignored by everybody because I you know, nobody knew, knew who I was. Mm -hmm. But I, just, I still stood there, tried my best. We were trying to sell components in those days, you know, woods and irons and, and just heads. And when the show was over, packed up the booth, drove it back to Abilene, unloaded it, and then drove back to Northern California. And I loved it. I loved the experience. Right. And I got back to Northern California. About two or three months later, there's a, a thing called the Semicon Show, the Semiconductor Show. Okay. And our little company that I was working with goes to the semiconductor show. And I'm trying to be, you know, a good guy, so to speak. So I helped them set up the booth and stood in the booth. And I was thinking, gosh, I'm, that's about lunchtime for me. You know, it's, uh, I've been here for a long time. And I looked at my watch and it was 10 minutes after nine in the morning. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, there's a message. You don't belong here. 
because it, it, the, the comparison between the two was ridiculous. So I went to the venture capital group, uh, told them I was leaving. They said, okay, can you maybe uh, check around? Can you find a company that could, we could maybe join the two companies together because we don't want to run this thing, you know, and so on. Well, as it turned out, I did find a guy at the show. They did testing uh, similar to ours, let's say down the line, so to speak. They were interested, the two companies combined. They had a dinner, told me what a nice guy I was and I had some money coming. And I took the money over, I think a couple of years because in my mind, now I had a salary and I could mm -hmm. go back to Abilene and do the golf. I had this all planned out. Get back to get in the car again, load it up, drive to Abilene, check into the Days Inn, my favorite place there because it was near a cafeteria. And now it's the first day. Now, now it's different than before because I had made the commitment. Now I was in this thing full time. Right. And I was up in the morning by, I was up at 5 a.m. and went over to the cafeteria that, uh, Got my breakfast. Uh, I was probably at our little building by 5.30 or so, 5.45. It was just a metal building that sat out of the field that we had rented. I got there, and with the, it, it had come with some – it used to be the Pell's facility, so it had some things in it, and among them were some desks. And I was going to pick a desk up. And I just wanted to pick one that wasn't being used. I didn't want to bother anybody. So I pick a desk out and I'm checking it out because when you have a metal a building of any kind in the middle of a field, critters come in and live with you, whether you want it or not. <laughs> so you don't want to open the drawer and get an unpleasant surprise. So I was going through the desk very carefully <laughs> to make sure that I didn't have any visitors. The, the lower left-hand drawer of the desk was full of paper. And I thought, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it just, that doesn't fit. So I pulled it out. I got a trash can. I was going to throw it away. And I happened to look at the top sheet. <clears throat> and it was a demand notice. And the bottom line was that while I thought that we had built enough cash so I would have, could run the business for get it started for a couple of years, mm -hmm. I not only did not have any cash, I owed uh, more than I was trying to save. I, I can't begin to describe the, it was like a, like a gut punch, only like 10 of them. And this is at 6 a.m. in the morning on my first day. So after I got finished throwing a fit, I broke a finger hitting the wall. Uh, I, uh, you know, I thought to myself, wait, well, you, know, you jerk, this is a, this is a message. You get out of here. You know, you can't survive at a, from a beginning like this. And I said, well, I can't leave because I owe our, I, the company owes these vendors that are from the golf business and I'm associated with that. Mm -hmm. I just can't walk out on them. So I wrote each one of them a letter immediately, told them what happened, said, you can sue me if you want, but I don't have any money, but I'll pay you. It might take, who knows how long it's going to take, but I'm just telling you the situation. That's the way it is. And in having my morning fit, I had a briefcase, which I also threw against the wall before I punched it. <laughs> uh, 
and I was picking up the stuff in the briefcase, there was a checkbook there. And what it was in those days, now this was uh, 80, I don't know, 88 or 87 or something like that. Um, it was actually a from a, uh, a bank saying, you've been approved for credit. If you want to use these checks, you know, but there was a solicitation for business. Okay. And I didn't even know I had it. I just saw it there. And I thought, hey, wait a minute, that's money. So being very crafty, I think my limit was 5,000 or something like that. But being very crafty, I immediately wrote a check for like $2,319 or something like that. So it would look like I was making, don't ask me why, but so I looked like I was making a payment and set up a gun, the money came through. Well, that began my financing for the next few years. I had 44 credit cards and I ran my own Ponzi scheme. And I would get money from one credit card to pay off what I owed on another credit card, or at least part of it. So they, they didn't come and get me. I just, it was a massive juggling routine that I, that I perpetrated on myself uh, to stay in business. And I, I forget when I finally could you get rid of the last one, but it was several years later, but I remember we had a, we burned it. We had, we had a ceremony, but that's how I got started. And that's not normal. That's my whole point. That's the, you, you, you don't, you think you go to a, a school or a seminar to start up a business and they would tell you that's what to do. I mean, that's a, that's a joke. You, you started so, in a hole with a shovel. Yeah, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> with a broken handle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I shortly moved from Abilene to Dallas because I was trying to sell locally and there just aren't enough people in Abilene. It's just right. too small a market. And uh, I moved into Dallas and at that time, Hank Haney was starting up his uh, teaching facility in Dallas with brand new. I didn't know him, never met him before. Go out there, introduce myself, say, look, at your building here, the far left-hand side is empty. I'll move in there. I'll do uh, repairs. I'll do custom fitting. And anything I sell, I'll sell through you. So we said, hey, that's a great idea. He was happy with that. And... Uh, my idea was that if I custom fitted people, I could now sell the product that I couldn't give away before because I could sell the service of custom fitting. Right. It sort of worked uh, enough so I could, you know, scratch around and stay alive. Uh, and I did, I wore the apron. I did grips and shafts and all the repair stuff. And this is the early 90s. And there wasn't any custom fitting per se in the early 90s. Right. So I was kind of a, of a pioneer in the custom fitting and I, I did it a little bit differently. I kept a lot of data. Uh, I wanted to figure out what worked the best. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll give you an example from that. Uh, and I again, people think I'm crazy, but if I were custom fitting today, if I were custom fitting you for a driver and let's say I had a line of drivers and I would give you, you know, one's a, 10 and a half, or one's a nine and a half, or one's an X and R, whatever, okay? Every time I switch clubs, I give you two swings. No more than two. And the reason for that is because I am trying to fit you. 
My job is to put something in your hands that works with your golf swing. My job is not to have you hit enough balls until you hit a good one. And we say, hi, look at that. Look at number 17 we hit over here a couple of minutes ago. You crushed it. You adjusted. And that's not a good fitting. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, that's the way the fitting is done today, I might add. But that's a whole other story. So, I mean, I did kind of weird stuff like that. And uh, in my fitting process, I, customers complained boy, can you help me? I can't get the ball off the ground. I, you know, my fairway woods are awful, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, I watched and they were, <laughs> they were right. They couldn't get the ball airborne. And with my fairway woods, they weren't doing any better. So I said, you know, Barney, that a lousy design. You need to fix it. And so the first thing I did is I went around to the local uh, golf stores and looked at the other manufacturers' designs and decided theirs weren't any better than mine were. And this kind of played, you know, this is one of these things you just go through your head and you just, you live with it for a while, but you're always thinking about it. And then one night, um, instead of going home, and I worked worked in our little shop, you know, we had three employees, but I worked in a little shop. That's where we made our clubs. We assembled the clubs for the few sales I got. Um, And by the way, I never took a salary. Uh, this was a, this was a hand to mouth operation, and as an aside, uh, I remember I told you about the two companies that combined. Mm-hmm. Well, there was an argument between them and the venture capital people, and the venture capital people got mad and decided they weren't going to pay me. So, on top of everything else, I didn't have any salary coming in. <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, what else? What's next? What else you want to do?" You know. <laughs> so anyway, I you know I kind of lived with this thing, thought about it. Etc. And then uh, I, I generally worked till about 10 at night. I worked in the afternoon, two to the afternoon till 10 at night. Instead of going home, I went back down to our little shop and I sketched out what I thought would be a good fairway wood that would help people. The key to custom fitting is A and F, airborne and forward. It's, it's everybody thinks it's so sophisticated and so on and so <laughs> forth. Think of the golfers that you play golf with. If they can get the ball up in the air, and get it forward down the fairway, they're happy. And that, that, that's, that's what I was working with. I think of the old uh, Hank Stram, just matriculate the ball down the field. I mean, that's... Yeah, the, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly right. So I can't, I just, I just, it's this design, it just came to me. And it was all the things that I wanted the club to do to make the ball respond the way I wanted to. And when I was doing the design, I wrote the name Tight Lies down at the bottom I have no idea how or where that came from. It just sort of happened. And I sent it to a source I knew overseas that made clubs and said, can you make me some of these? And this wasn't a computer design. This was me on a, on a, on a, on a pad. And, and, a, and a Not a pad, it was a pad. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, you know, a few weeks later, these clubs came in a box, these club heads, and I shafted them up. And we went out and hit them, and they, they worked. And my customers loved them. You know, they get the ball up in the air. This really works. Well, to show you the, the, the degree of my brilliance, in my mind, it was over. I had fixed my little, my problem, my custom fitting problem and time to go on with something else in life. And what happened was just, you know, I had really nothing to do with it. It was just the club took on a life of its own. I'd get a call. 
hey, Barnyard, I played with Joe the other day, and he can't hit it that good. I got to get me one of them tight things you got, and so on. And the club grew in popularity, and, uh, you know, our retailers who wouldn't give us the time of day because we're too small, we didn't advertise, all of a sudden started showing some interest. And then I learned another lesson. And by the way, you could stop me any time here. I might, you know, we might be on here for days. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting at my desk, get a call. It's a guy with the store. And he said, I need your address. I need to send your clubs back. And I'm thinking, what do you mean you need to send the clubs back? <clears throat> you know, they work. It's all, oh, they work great. But said, you don't advertise or anything. You don't do anything to help the business. He said, you know, you, you, you got to, you're not doing your job. Well, again, another lesson learned, golf equipment is not sold. Golf equipment is bought. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to incent a buyer to go someplace and buy something. That's why the four major companies in golf today, Payne, Callaway, Titleist, and TaylorMade, were the four major companies back then. And 40 years later, they're still the four major companies because it's a marketing game. And you woke if you woke up in the morning with a great idea for a set of golf clubs, uh, unless you've got literally tens of millions of dollars to invest in marketing, they aren't going to sell because the marketing strength is that much stronger now with you know lessons learned over the years and so on. So I learned that we had to figure out a way to get the word out. Well, here we go again. One of my customers was in the infomercial business. I did not know what an infomercial was. Right. He, he explained it to me and he said, your product is perfect for an infomercial. And I thought, well, I'll look into it. You know, I don't know. And I did. And I make long story short. And I thought, you know, we got a shot at this. This, this might just work. I can't think of anything else. This might just work. Now we, I had gone to, uh, I mentioned the four major companies at the time. I had gone to some of the minor companies that used to be majors like Wilson and Spalding and so on that were getting hurt and try to make a deal with them. And they wouldn't give me the time of day. They wouldn't, you know, they're right. not interested. I think it's called NIH, not invented here, but whatever it was. So I did a blood research, figured out we got a, a people that people that do infomercials to put the show together the bottom line was it was about a three hundred thousand dollar price tag to do it right <laughs> which was about three hundred thousand dollars more than i had <laughs> exactly. i had i had investors very small group uh guys that i knew personally you know uh but was there was no serious money involved but they could i knew that they financially they could if they wanted to so i we had a meeting and I explained the situation and I explained the infomercial and I told them I thought that it could make a serious difference for us. And I said, look, you know, I don't have a dime. I don't get paid. I'm you know, living hand to mouth. So here's what I'll do. You put up the money and I will give you 100% of the company. If we're successful, then I want to earn back X percentage. Mm -hmm. If we're unsuccessful, you can sell it for what you get out of it. Right. They said, are you serious? 
And I said, yeah, I am. I mean, how, how else are you going to do this? So they said, well, if you're that convinced, you're that serious, we'll put up the money. They did. It went on to become the largest golf infomercial in history. Uh, we, our sales went from virtually nothing to close to $100 million in, in less than two years. And you cannot manage that kind of growth. It was That's another chapter or six in the insanity story, which I won't right. bore you with, but it's, it's crazy. And then one day uh, I'm sitting there uh, and three guys in suits came, which was unusual because we didn't we didn't dress up. We wore golf shirts, you know, no shorts, but golf shirts. They said, hello, we're from Wall Street. We know your story. We'd like to take it public. And I said, you're going to have to explain this to me. I mean, I, I, in, a, in, a, in a major sense, I knew what it was, but specifically I didn't know. And they explained it to me. And I said, well, I'll talk to my investors. I'm, we're probably interested, <clears throat> but you got to guide me every step of the way because we don't know what the heck, you know, this is your world, not ours. Right. And they did. And we became the largest public offering in the history of the golf industry. And you think, oh, my God, you know, life has finally turned around for these guys. It's all going to be sweetness and so on. Four days after we went public, Callaway missed its numbers for the quarter and put out a statement that said the golf industry was oversupplied and it was going to be tough sledding for a while. <laughs> Our stock tanked before it had a chance to do anything because that's such a Callaway was the golf industry in those days. There was nobody else that they listened to. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that in a left-handed sort of way, all of the chaos and the, difficulty in the impossible situations that I had gone through up to that point were like a training for what came next because we were, we were villains. We were, you know, phony stock, phony, this bad, that, you know, investors mad at us. I mean, we had nothing to, nothing to do you, about it. You hadn't done anything. <laughs> That's right. We didn't give a chance to do anything, but we became bad guys right away. And it was very, very, difficult. I had, I had employees break down and cry. I had employees leave. Uh, the pressure was just overwhelming because there was nothing good. We were bad people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we fought through it and the company survived and it was actually doing okay. And then, uh, oh, there was a, I, I hired a guy to take my position as, as president because, I knew he would do a better job than I was. Uh, I'm not a good president. I read, I'd rather work out in the back with the guys doing designs and stuff. And uh, he took over the position and I didn't realize it, but in so doing, I infuriated one of our investors. They did, uh, I didn't consult with them. I just did it. And uh, it became very nasty. Uh, they wanted me to come back as president let this guy go. I refused to do it. He was doing a good part be a good job in my opinion. So they contacted some uh, Wall Street and put the company up for sale. They were the majority shareholder. And that's when the sale to uh, Tatterbait occurred. And, you know, it was the end of the road. But 
in, in honesty, when you go public, you've already sold your company. And I knew that. Right. So I just couldn't sit there and whine and moan and so on. Oh my God, what are they doing? That, you know, that's the way the game goes. So Adams golf is now part of Taylor Bate and uh, Barnyard's out in the desert with his age group. What was next after the sale in 2012 to TaylorMade? Uh, nothing for a while. Um, and then I uh, uh, got talking to a guy who was wanted to show me a new, I knew him, and he wanted me to show, show me this new line of putters he was doing. And I said, look, before I even look at your product, let me explain one thing to you. There has never been an independent putter company in the history of the golf industry that hasn't failed. You can't name one. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't count selling online as success because you don't know you don't know the numbers. A guy could you know could be a hobby, could be anything. Right. But cer- but certainly, you don't go into selling putters with the idea that we're going to dominate selling online. I think it's a little better today than it was back then, but it's still it. You're competing. I mean, you're competing with Ping, you're competing with Callaway, Titleist, TaylorMade. I mean, are you kidding me? And you're just gonna show them you got this new product and it's better. And I said it isn't gonna work. You know, name me one company that's that's made it that way. And he well couldn't do it. So he showed me the data. And bottom line is, in the data, there was a discrepancy in performance which meant that something was going on during the putting stroke that we had to didn't couldn't find out what it was. Right. Had a friend with a camera. He worked, did uh, work for NASA that shot at a hundred thousand frames a second. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. And we were able to view the putting stroke at a hundred thousand frames a second. And what you saw was a slight oscillation in the shaft. Mm-hmm. Which we did. We, we were very surprised. Yeah, especially. Well, it, I mean, in a putter at a putter stroke speed. I mean, that's yeah, that's exactly. Something. It's right. Come on, it's it's, it's dormant practically, and in uh, in of course, if the shaft is oscillating slightly, that means the head is oscillating slightly. Right. And if the head is oscillating slightly, then your chances of hitting the ball square, which is the absolute key to putting, you want the putter face square to the ball at impact. I don't care if you're break down your wrist or stand on your head or whatever you want the the, the, the butterface square to the ball you're 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 making that job much more difficult well in doing research <clears throat> if you go back to my old days putters were blades bullseyes they were very light then over the years as the idea of perimeter weighting became more popular mm-hmm. moving weight in the heel and the toe which of course Karsten started the putter heads have gotten much heavier. They've, they're, they're like two or three times heavier than they were in the old days. The shaft hasn't changed. The putter right. shaft is the putter shaft is the putter shaft. And the heads are slightly stressing the putter shaft. Well, stop there. You can fix that problem very easy. Make the putter shaft twice as wide. The only problem with that is it feels awful. And that made the job at the time a very difficult job. You not only have to fix the problem, you have to supply a product that weighs the same, that is balanced exactly the same as steel, so the golfer doesn't have to adjust. 
Well, it goes back to your, your philosophy of fitting is you don't want them to change their swing. You want to make the club that fits what they're already doing. And, and if right. you do something different, then they're going to have to adjust. And that's certainly not what you believe in. No, especially in putting, especially in putting the ball hitting, you know, you hit enough bad shots. It's hard to tell the bad ones from the good ones sometimes, but it's very, very uh, responsive. So it took about two years to develop a shaft that did not oscillate, weighed the same, balanced the same, and so on. And that's the product that's in Breakthrough Golf Tech, so to speak, that we're selling. And I, I will be very, well, I'll be very honest on two aspects. Number one, you could put this shaft in your putter and putt like a dog. Believe me, I have. It's not some magic thing that's going to take 18 strokes off your score or whatever, you know, like some of the ads read or so on. It's better. And you will putt better. You'll get better distance control. We just were talking to uh, uh, Louis Oosthuizen's manager who was, and Louis putts with one. And he was very happy with his distance control because that's, you know, that's such a big deal out there in the tour where the greens are so fast. Mm-hmm. And because you're hitting it with a square face all the time, you'll get better distance control and you will make a little bit more putts. You know, I don't know how many it is. It's fractional, to be honest with you, but it's a better product. Right. So even with that, going back in the golf business without any marketing money up against the big guys, same old story. I go back to the subtitle for the book, and that's entrepreneurship and insanity. You know, <laughs> I ought to know better. But uh, well, it is insanity, which insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. So, of course. <laughs> <laughs> The difference is, of course, nowadays there's the, the marketing options are, are so varied and, and, and they come at such a varying price scale that at least there's something that can be done from the beginning entrepreneur. There is. It's it, it just it's, it's, but you've you're, you've got that that mountain of marketing that you're up against. Mm-hmm. That's that if, if you visualize yourself, you know looking out the window and there's a mountain and your goal is to get on the other side of it. And that that's, the, that's what is so very difficult. How do you get over that mass? I mean, you look at the statements made by the marketing arm for some of the big companies, and you know that some of them are, let's just say they're very carefully worded. We'll put it that way. Okay. But you're up against that. You can't say, well, look, look what they said. That, that doesn't work that way. Nobody's going to believe you. You know, you're a nobody. So you just have to figure out a way to survive. And so far, I'm knocking on wood as I sit here. We've, I think we're like two and a half years in and we've survived and we've got very good product. We know we have very good product. We have little or except for an occasional guy like, say, Louie, we don't have much of any tour success because we don't pay. And the, all the tour players have managers. And if you approach one, the manager jumps in between you and wants to know what your pay program is. <laughs> and you don't have one. Then he tells you to get lost. You know, we know the drill. So, uh, you know, life goes on. You just, you just, you just got to keep doing what you know is right. <clears throat> 
Well, and for the for the record, I mean your your putter shaft is the stability putter shaft, which is exactly what you've been talking about is making it more stable so that you can at least have a chance to make more putts. It, it's interesting, you know, all these years of working in the equipment industry and you talk about the marketing, it, it's it seems like a lot of it the business is marketing year to year to year as you try to come up with new technology that actually will expand the capabilities of a club, but that doesn't necessarily happen every year. Think of, think of, think of drivers every year. What do the ads say? More distance, right? Mm -hmm. Does that mean last year's was bad? (laughs) You know, it's, that's the deal. The fact is, I mean, it's funny because I've done fittings and, and I was custom fit a couple of years ago and they found that a driver head that now I think is three years old was still beating everything else that's new Yes, because it fit me. Exactly. That's exactly right. My driver, well, all my clubs are old. They're all like eight or 10 years old. It's not because they're bad. It's because I like the way they look mm-hmm. and they hit fine. You know, when I do it right, that is. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, I, you know, it's just the way the game is. No, ab- absolutely. I I do have to ask you. Twenty twenty saw record growth in golf. I mean, more people coming to play the game. How do you think that the powers that be in the game should go about keeping these new and returning players for the long term? That's a very good question, and I have actually been asked that before. And I think it's a very, to be very honest, I think it's a, uh, you know, the only way you can ask to me, the only way I can answer that question is I've got to transport myself to a place that's experiencing this significant growth Mm -hmm. and say, all right, now you're in charge, meathead. What are you going to do to keep these people? Right. Rather than do it, you know, theoretically, I'm I'm trying to put myself on on the spot. I, and if you think about it that way, think let's say you run a, a really good public facility because that's where a lot of the play is, and you you notice you got more players playing. How do you keep them? I mean, you, you you walk out and say, "Hey, I haven't seen you before. You know, I'd like to have you come back." I mean, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. <clears throat> I think what you've got to do is make sure that your facility is run as well as possible. Make the for all for the current members and any of the new people uh, or people playing there, you want to make it as fun as possible. Uh, for example, if you've got pace of play issues, that's one of the big, big problems with golf courses, right? Public right. and private. What I would do is I would establish a pace of play. What is it? Well, to me, three and a half hours. Mm-hmm. I don't think a golf course, I mean, uh, most guys uh, and women, as far as that goes, because I, I played a place that's like that. If you were just, if you're only people on the course and you're in golf carts, what's it take to play 18 holes? 245, maybe three o'clock tops. I mean, three hours tops. Right. You know, it's not a four or five hour gig. No. So what I would do at my course, <clears throat> I would say, okay, uh, welcome to, you know, Adam's Luxury Golf. And pace of play here is three and a half hours, and we're going to monitor it. Now, that means two things. That means the guys that want to play in three hours can't be running up the back of the people that are willing to play in three and a half hours. Fair is fair. That also means that the people that are 
sort of playing golf, but out for a walk and enjoying the uh, vistas and so on, that want to take four hours, they're at the wrong place. Mm-hmm. You got to be, you got to stand for something. Cause I, I think other than that, it's, it's, it's too much of a crapshoot. You know, you lose them and you wouldn't, you don't want to know why. So I mean, I, I truly believe that you've got to really uh, button up your golf course, button up your services. Uh, you got to, who are you? What do you stand for? Make sure that these people are, are welcome to play. Uh, whoever these people are, and that's the hard part about it, because you, you look at some and say, Gee, were they here last year? Or, you know, do they, you know, you don't have those kind of records necessarily. So everybody's welcome, everybody's friendly. Uh, we, we, we follow the rules. Um, I don't know what else you can do, to be honest with you. <clears throat> One idea that I had, and it, it's crazy, but it comes from the most traditional of golf. And I go to Muirfield, where if you play in the afternoon at Muirfield, you're playing alternate shot. That's what, that's what the course setup is. And it made me think, what if you set up your course municipal open to everybody, but you had different formats for different days. And if you were going to come and play on a Wednesday, it's an alternate shot afternoon. And the point being is that it allows for people to play a different game. It makes it, you talk about, you know, the fun. Well, golf is only going to be as fun as your shots allow it to be. So let's see how we can change it to make it more enjoyable so that it's not just about me and fighting that golf ball, but it's me partnered up with my buddy. And now we can go and just have a a good old lark of an afternoon seeing what we can do because it's not going to count against our handicap doesn't mean anything. It's just fun on the golf course. I agree with that. And and you, you, you've, you've sparked a thought. Golf is not fun. And for People that try to market golf as fun, I think they're doing the game of disservice. Golf is hard. <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it's, and it, and it, because it's hard, it's very rewarding. And it's the rewarding aspect that brings people back. It isn't the round they played, it's the shot they hit. You, you want to try a, a little experiment on your show or whomever, ask somebody what the best shot they hit was for the last round they played. And you'll almost always get an answer and you'll almost always get an answer with a kind of a smile. Yeah, gosh, I flushed a three wood. I remember I mean, I played yesterday and I can remember the three wood that I flushed among all the other garbage that I hit. So it's a rewarding experience. And if you, if you try and bring people back by telling them how fun golf is, you're going to lose them because it isn't fun. Your idea of the alternate shot is is a way of making it rewarding. You know, you like I say, you and your friend, he hits a good shot. You you get a, a piece of the action, so to speak, mm-hmm. and you're not beating your brains out because otherwise. I mean, here's my example. <clears throat> All the years I've been in the golf industry, I've heard the same story. The women are coming. Get ready, pal, because the women have discovered golf. And there's, there's literally millions of them and they're taking up the game and so on and so forth. I can remember two companies that were started to make just women's golf clubs. Uh, I, don't I didn't think of, I think more than that. Yeah. Oh yeah. This, this is just what I remember this some years ago. And you know what? 
they didn't. And you know why they didn't? Because women are smarter than men. And they're not going to go out there and sweat and roll a ball on the ground and hit it into a hazard and, and beat their brains out. They got something better to do. It's not fun. It's very hard. And I think it's a poorly marketed game from that aspect. We like to wrap up our talks here on the range by jumping into the Wayback Machine. I think we've been there a lot, a lot of the time today. But uh, I want to go into your golf bag of life or maybe your all-time product warehouse. Either or, is there a club or two that just bring out a warm, nostalgic feeling in, in your heart? You think back and it's like, you know, I loved that club, even if it's something you don't play now. Well, certainly the tight lies, uh, because that was the, and I still play one. That, that's something that, that really interests me. You know, uh, I have people tell me, oh, that tight lies, I loved it. God, that was the best club in my bag. Uh, it's in the garage now. And I'm thinking, I wonder why. I mean, did it go bad? Did it rot? You know, uh, it, uh, it's, it's, what the heck? The game hasn't changed. It's still that little white thing on the ground, and you got to get it up in the air and move it forward. Because I, I, like you, I kinda, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier, I play with clubs that are fairly old, mm-hmm. and I, I don't care what the how old the club is, I care where the golf ball goes, and I care what the bet when I'm looking down at it, and address what's the message that gets through my thick head that allows me to make a good enough swing to get the ball to where I want it to go, and I don't care if it was made fifty years ago or five minutes ago or so on and so forth. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if you look at a lot of the so-called improvements in clubs today, many of them are upgraded variations of things that were started 40, 50, 60 years ago. I put a chapter on that in my book, as a matter of fact. You know, today's, I mean, how much difference is there in today's sand wedge from what Jim, Gene Sarazen filed down you know, 80 years ago, almost nothing, almost nothing. So in your, in your golf bag of fond memories, it's ball flight. What happened using that club that brings back good memories? Not how it was designed or who made the head or the shaft or the grip or so on. But, you know, I, (laughs) I get asked all the time, Bart, what do you think about this club? Or what do you think about that? Blah, blah. And I said, why are you asking me? Ask the golf ball. Golf ball never lies. You know, if it goes far and straight, there's an answer. If it goes along the ground, there's an answer. Yeah, it tells you some harsh truths, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can say it's it's cruel. <laughs> it's yeah, I've I've been I it's funny. I have got seriously, I've got clubs that I can hit pretty well on the range. I I I still like to hit balls, even though I'm old. I've got a bad back and stuff. I still like to hit balls. And I can hit them pretty well on the range. But somehow, between the range and the golf course, they change. Because when I get them on the golf course to hit that same shot, it isn't there. Something happened to it. I don't know what happened to it, but it's whatever it was, I left it on the range. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the years I've tried to overcome that, I haven't done a very good job. For those that are listening that aren't familiar, what's the name of your book? Oh, it's called The Wow Factor, W-O-W. And that uh, was actually kind of a mantra in our company when we looked at new products. 
we'd say, well, does this have a wow? Is this going to get people interested? So we, we use that phrase a lot in our, in our, in our business. I just want to make sure people can uh, go out and find it because it is a fantastic read. And, and I, I remember taking it in some time ago. We, we've, we talked a long time ago, so it's great catching up with you. Thank you for joining us. I know our audience can hear your passion for the business as well as the game. And that's come out in, in the products that you've been able to deliver even now at the Stability Putter Shaft. So thank you for all the work that you've done. And thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me on. I will uh, look up, see if I can find some more old people like me. Maybe I can I can find somebody to play golf with today. <laughs> Thanks, Barney. Okay, bye. That was the legendary creator Barney Adams here on the range. Imagine jumping into the golf industry and facing that uphill battle. He did it, and he created a singular product along the way that launched an entire brand. Just an amazing, amazing story. And his feelings on the game are strong. You can hear that. Uh, the folks in charge of the different areas of golf would be well served to heed his advice. That was a fun talk. Before we go, the PGA Tour just wrapped up its West Coast swing at Riviera with the Genesis Invitational. Any talk about Riv will focus on the legendary short par 4, 315-yard 10th hole. Obviously, it's a great design, and it generally plays as one of the hardest short par fours on tour. Yet there was an uproar from the anti-distance crowd because very few players chose to lay up, instead taking on the challenging green complex off the tee. Distance is killing the game, they screamed. The reality is that the 10th is one of the toughest greens to hit from inside of 75 yards, and playing from distance is just plain and simple not a smart choice. And yet, even with all these players attacking, it yielded just one eagle for the week versus 11 double bogeys. You see, we saw exactly what the anti-distance folks say is impossible. A classic course held up to a loaded field, and it shined. Rory McIlroy, 7 over through two rounds. Justin Thomas, he was 8 over. They both missed the cut. They know the course, but it still bit them. We got a reminder that a good, fair, stern course setup can prevail. Has anyone ever said that players in the NBA should go back to wearing Chuck Taylors? Of course not. Innovation and advancement are integral to the human condition, and golf, as we just heard with Barney Adams, can be cruelly human. We just got another reminder. There is plenty of new gear available for 2021, and the best place to get deep inside looks at it all is the Golf Spotlight. We are dropping new features all the time, looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. Click on the YouTube subscribe button at thegolfspotlight.com and turn on those notifications so you never miss one of our features. There's a lot going on and a lot coming to market. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at the Golf Spotlight. We're also on Twitter at Golf Spotlight. We welcome your comments everywhere. You've listened this far, so subscribe to the range on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of the range. So let's grab our clubs, hit the course, and play it the way we want to play and enjoy a rewarding experience. And we'll talk to you next time right here on The Range. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save 